0: All right, I'm Jeffrey Rickman, and this is Plain Spoken, and from time to time I do interviews, and I feel good about all of them, otherwise I wouldn't put them out. Uh, Today I'm um, eager to interview Jay Thorell, who is, of course, the uh, chair, the head uh, of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. He's been at the front of this movement from the beginning. Um, He's already produced a lot of content. He's graciously um, lent his, his face and his voice to me this morning, as I've got a few questions that um, I've already said on the podcast I've wanted to ask him, and it turns out I just had the wrong phone number for him. Um, but uh, Jay, Jay and I are conservatives. I serve on the local Wesleyan Covenant Association in Oklahoma. He, he leads the whole kit and caboodle. Uh, Jay lives in Florida. He's a huge Gators fan, and we'll forgive him for that. You know, I shouldn't make sports jokes. I'm not a sports person, but I, I know that you are, and, and I, forgive me, I'm just going to steer clear of that. Um, but he, his background is in law. Uh, I originally spoke with, with Mr. Thorell uh, a year ago whenever uh, I was trying to figure out who's this Dan Dalton guy who's the National Center for Life and Liberty. Uh, and Jay has just been a, a calm, solid voice for uh, conservatives to consider as they've tried to navigate the waters of the United Methodist Church and figure out where we stand. And so um, the time that, that we're gonna spend here over the next uh, few minutes is, is going to be rich. And I, I'm, I'm intentionally going to try and make it beneficial to anyone who's watching who doesn't know the history necessarily or the undergirding theology or the, the hopes that, that Mr. Thorell is, is carrying. Um, he's one of the leading voices in what's going on. He's going to be very influential in the next year before paragraph 2553 expires in figuring out what course um, conservatives go within the UMC. So very pleased to have you on, Jay. Thank you for joining me.
1: No, thank you. You're very kind introduction, but uh, thank you. And I am definitely a Florida Gators fan through and through. So uh, probably not the topic for this uh, interview, but if anyone wants to know why Jesus is a Florida Gator, I would be more than happy to explain the theological underpinnings of that. Uh-huh.
0: So. I remember your first photo that got circulated with your name when you took the helm had you wearing a Gators <laughs> shirt. And there were people who really took issue with that. They really <laughs> had a problem oh, with that. Uh, and I just thought, man, this is y- y'all are taking yourselves too seriously. So anyway, you're I,
1: I heard from some Florida I heard from some Florida State fans on that one. Yeah. Uh, well. A, love them. Yeah, you you, you like, and
0: I are bound together um, by uh, uh, love of the Methodist tradition, the Wesleyan tradition. The the place I always want to start off with, with every guest, and I always forget, is to talk about how it is that you fell in with the Wesleyan Methodist heritage, what it is about that heritage that you really like and and want to continue on in the future.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I actually come from a long line of Presbyterians. Oh no. Um, My dad was a Presbyterian pastor. My grandfather, his dad was a Presbyterian pastor. So I grew up Presbyterian and I always tell folks, I, I chose the Methodist church. Um, I, if I just kind of stayed what I would known was I was raised as a boy, I would I'd be Presbyterian today. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I couldn't make Calvinism work. I I thought about it a lot and studied about it, and it it just did not. I could not make it work with how I was reading and understanding Scripture. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I became uh, a Methodist because I, it fits with how I understand god speaking to us in the bible and the John particulars Western's, of that
0: would be the double predestination versus free will thing is that the particular theological hang-up you had
1: that was that was a huge piece of it okay yeah and and when when i when i really kind of began to understand what prevenient grace is what justifying grace what sanctifying grace is um it, it was it was it was like I met the the very thing I had been looking for my whole life, and like, aha! This is how it this is how it works. Yes, <laughs> of course. Uh, that's what that's what I see when I when I you know encounter the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Uh, I yes, this makes total sense. So I I chose the Methodist Church when I was a young adult, and uh, uh, and have been a Methodist ever since.
0: And so you started off as laity and uh, were working in law, and then how long ago did you switch to to serving churches?
1: did. Uh, If you'd asked me at five years old what I was going to be when I grew up, I would have told you a lawyer. Mm -hmm. I knew all the way back when I was in kindergarten, which is crazy, but I did. Um, But uh, if I was being really truthful, uh, probably the summer of my first year of law school, I knew that I was not supposed to become a lawyer. I I, I would, I would sit in worship uh, with my then fiance, my wife now, twenty three years. Um, I would sit there and I would just know that the Holy Spirit was calling me to become a pastor. But I just invested way too much and way too many student loans uh, to give up. You know the the course that I had set down, so. I, uh, Practice law for uh, several years. I was a tax lawyer, state planning, corporate law, that, those sorts mm-hmm. of things. But I was also lay leader of my local United Methodist Church. And I would wake up in the morning very excited about what I needed to do for the church that day mm-hmm. and not terribly excited about how many hours I needed to bill for the law firm that day. And i i share the story because i just to me it's one of those kind of serendipitous movements of god i when i finally you know i i finally said all right i give in i will i'm gonna do this uh and i i went to the president of our law firm i was his associate and i took my resignation letter and i said you know charlie i'm feeling called to become a pastor And so I guess I need to resign so I can go to seminary. Mm -hmm. And he looked at me and he said, well, Jay, this law firm has sent six other pastors to seminary. So I guess we're going to have to send a seventh. Oh, wow. I had no no idea. I did not know that was a part of our firm's history. Uh, They allowed me to work part-time. No law firm does that. They let me work part-time through seminary. Uh, they paid me when I certainly wasn't working you know the hours that they needed me to work. Oh wow and, uh, such such a gracious law firm um, and uh, it it just was amazing the way it all it came to be.
0: So. I've already reached the age where I can't um, resist a bad joke and uh, there's a saying about death and taxes being the only things you can't avoid in life and you have majored in both of them. <laughs> so i did that uh
1: absolutely i have i I did both yep
0: well good for you Uh, but i'll tell
1: you this i when i was an estate planner what i learned very quick i mean obviously there was lots of taxes and tax codes and all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. but uh estate planning is a lot of pastoral counseling right
0: yeah
1: you're sitting down with Folks and every family has a drama, and you're trying to help them figure out how to navigate it with their estate plan. So,
0: my wife and I both did, um, we went through this process of estate planning a couple of years ago, and then we recorded a video trying to urge people to do it because, as you know, a ton of people just never do it, even though it has huge implications for their families. And we right. were very glad that we worked with a local lawyer who was a believer, a firm believer, and could talk about not just the, the family stuff, but just the eventualities of um, how life ends and uh, just how ugly and disturbing it can be. But to, to, to have that conversation unflinchingly, uh, because we have a hope that is more powerful uh, than that and who yeah. is on the other side of that. So it's definitely pastoral. Yeah. But so many—well, I mean, it's like doctors. Doctors are dealing with mortality all the time, and yet so few of them are, are spiritually equipped to guide others through that. Uh, they can talk about the body, but they can't really do that pastoral care that's needed. So there's something to Very be true. said for bivocational pastors and, and, and lay pastors, people of the, the priesthood of all believers who minister in their capacities. But people like you and me have just uh, loved the Lord and His church so much that we've decided to give all of our time. And uh, he's seen fit to, to make that a, a realistic proposition for us where we can be supported. And, and you have been supported um, in Florida. I think I remember that you had three church appointments before you were a DS. Is that right?
1: I did. Uh, in seminary, I served an appointment, a student local pastor, as an associate pastor at First Methodist in Kissimmee. Uh, at the time, I don't know if it's still the case or not, at time it was the closest church to Disney World. Uh, so for two young 20-somethings that was kind of fun to you know to be able to do that uh out of seminary i served as the associate pastor at first methodist in ormond beach which is right next to daytona beach most folks know daytona oh sure uh and then i and then i served uh cape coral first uh united methodist church for eight years as the senior pastor there and had a, a wonderful eight years at that church. Uh, I I tell folks every everyone deserves an appointment like Cape Coral first was at least once uh, during their time as a pastor. It just a great great appointment, uh, and then served for four years as district superintendent in the Jacksonville area, and loved that uh, as well. I thoroughly enjoyed being a DS.
0: That was a that was point at which I heard about you because the WCA had been formed and you were holding information sessions and there came to be a great deal of concern about how that was conducted. Now, before we get into that, and I do want to lean into the controversial areas around the WCA because I think that's where the most confusion is and it would be good to, to t- shine a light on that stuff. I want to talk history first because um, the way I'm looking at the history I'm interviewing Joe DiPaolo uh, tomorrow, and he's, he's apparently a big history buff. We have a few of those in our denomination. But it seems to me that liberalism was on the rise in Christianity, Western Christianity, 200 years ago. It made huge inroads into the Methodist uh, tradition starting about 150 years ago. It seems to me about a century ago, liberalism was ascendant within the church, and, and there were a number of public things around the Scopes Monkey Trial, and um, the Boston personalism guy, I can't remember his name, but it seems to me that Methodism publicly threw its hat in the ring for liberalism a hundred years ago or so. And then there have just been different things along the line to reaffirm that the Methodists have gone liberal. Um, And yet we find ourselves at this juncture, here and now, where um, according to UM News, the poll that they did before, I think it was in 2019, um, a majority of people sitting in the pews lean right um, what what's happened here where we're having this split now? Everybody did not leave 50, 100 years ago on the right, but right-leaning Methodists stuck around, continued to build up churches, continued to give apportionments, continued to build up this huge bureaucratic superstructure we see now. How do you explain... I mean, of course, we could talk about this for a full hour, but if you could spend just a couple... I. I I think a number of people on the left look at conservatives and go, they're just trying to tear things apart. They've had the chance to leave this whole time, and they didn't take it. Why now?
1: So there are people who have written far better uh, and uh, much more uh, voluminous uh, books that I could give an answer to orally than in a short piece. One that I highly recommend you may have read it, probably have, uh, my friend Jim Heidinger, uh, Jim was president of Good News for decades, and uh, Jim wrote what I kind of consider to be the definitive book uh, a couple years ago uh, called The Rise of Theological Liberalism and the Decline of American Methodism, mm-hmm. and uh, Billy Abraham did the foreword for the book, uh, it really just outstanding book, and I, I recommend it to folks. It, it is a little lengthier and it's a little meatier, but if you want a good history lesson that will take you through all the different stages of just kind of how we have gotten into the mess we're in today, Jim does a beautiful job of it.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, I would say a huge piece of it was the rise of personalism uh, in the, the Methodist movement. And uh, the seminaries began to shift to that and... I think is, and, and in conjunction with that, kind of, well, even before that, getting way into Methodist nerd speak here now, Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the, you know, the course of study had been the primary means of educating Methodist pastors for a long time. And then <clears throat> somewhere kind of around the Civil War, uh, then really people began to shift from preferring the course of study to seminary. And so when that began and then personalism began to rise up and all the seminaries began to share this, um, I think that's where you begin to see the seeds that have grown to this mess that we're in. And, and, uh, you know, sometimes people say, well, what's so bad about personalism and what is personalism? And it it really kind of lifts up the individual's choice and understanding uh, in their faith journey. And some people might say, well, that sounds like a great thing. But the problem with that is the more you lift up your own choice, the more you're kind of putting yourself in the driver's seat as Lord. And it begins to decrease the Lordship of Jesus Christ, which is is a non-starter. You know, Jesus is Lord is the oldest creed of the entire Christian faith. So... Uh, anytime Jesus is no longer complete and total Lord of our lives, we begin to get into trouble. And I just think over decades we've we've seen that erosion. Then it becomes to the authority of Scripture. If as we we that begins to erode, and then once the authority of Scripture begins to erode, there's all sorts of things that begin to just crumble and fall apart. So we kind of get to 2023. And, and you know the media loves to kind of make our present drama all about human sexuality, right. And I don't I don't want to no one belittle that. Human sexuality is important. I mean it's sure. a yeah. it's a part of who we are as created human beings by God. Um, but I just I think that's a real, um, I think it is a a misnomer uh, when it's stated that that's what this drama is all about. Uh, because I believe it's about the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture. And I think it cheapens uh, what this debate is all about when we just focus on that one area. I also think it targets people that, you know, we we, we may not agree with someone's choices theologically, but we also don't want to harm them. Um, and I, I think it, it causes that as well. And I don't think that's fair. Uh, but I think it makes, uh, it makes for an easy soundbite or it makes for easy clickbait.
0: And well, it's it, it's salacious. It, it makes well. It's it's also. I mean, it really does seem self evidently clear to most people looking at it that that there were tensions between liberals and conservatives for decades. But there's something about the homosexuality thing that just pushed it over. And why is it? Would you agree with that characterization that it was just the straw that broke the camel's back, or do you think that that really that is just a an ancillary thing an ancillary thing and that really, this is just um, a larger issue altogether.
1: Well, I, no, I, I wholeheartedly believe this is at its core about the lordship of Jesus Christ and the authority of Scripture. And I, I know, and I, there will be theological liberals who hear me say that on this interview and just yeah. will be furious when they hear me say that. Well, so I, I was and, writing uh,
0: a centrist, and I was saying, okay, you know, if I were a conservative, that was not just a bigot from my perspective. You know, I'm, I'm interviewing Jay Terrell. What's a question you would have me ask? And, uh, and he said, okay, yeah, there were these tensions all the way along and I hear conservatives saying it's not all about sexuality, but the, the presenting issue here was sexuality. So explain why now, why this? And, and as I understand it, I mean, the way I would answer that is to say, this is something that's so clearly highlighted using the words that you just used, there's the subjective, self-referential mode of of being uh, spiritual, and then there's the objective, um, other-centered way of doing it. And then when you're talking about biblical interpretation, that's where it gets in the weeds, uh, because of course people on the left say, we we interpret the, the Scriptures just as firmly, we just look at different Scriptures and i don't like getting into those weeds but one thing's uh, one of the things that i do focus on is the doctrine of the fall i just think it's so self-evident whenever you read through the bible uh, the depravity of all humans born in adam that that our hearts are inclined towards sin and that continually and outside of the the external intervention of christ's holy spirit there is no hope for me and for others and that's why a self-referential faith is is damnable because I am damned outside of Christ Jesus. Um, I used a lot of language you didn't there, but that's what I think conservatives have to lean into. That's, I think, the primary thing separating us is um, with conservatives, our, our anthropology, our self-understanding of humans is that we're messed up and we need a savior. With liberals, that, that doesn't carry over. They believe that we're made in, in God's image and in need of affirmation, not correction or uh, uh, um, discipline. And so, you know, for me as a Methodist, discipline was at the core of what we started off doing, and yet now I believe that we've, we've created a, a counterfeit uh, on the left that doesn't do any of that. But for me, as I explain why the division has come now, it, it has to do with other factors, like um, uh, the, 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 the balance of theological liberalism versus conservatism has shifted in the denomination. We've had plenty of chances to resolve it amicably. It's finally become very clear that there is not to be an amical, amicable behavior on the left. Um, how much of what I... Pre, you know, the, the, and then the human sexuality thing for me, it does just highlight this belief in the fall versus belief in the innate goodness of, of people when when they don't believe that human sexual inclination can be fallen, messed up from the beginning, um, when they believe that all people are just made this way and that's inherently good, versus f- for people like me, I would say not just gay people are born sexually fallen, but all people have disordered loves, and and that includes sexuality, and, and it's a very important part of the faith that has historically been claimed and upheld by Christians of all stripes. How much of what I lift up there do you identify with and think is good, and then how much do you think uh, maybe I'm missing the mark or not lifting up something that's helpful for centrists and liberals to consider in all this.
1: I, I don't think you're missing the mark at all, Jeffrey. Um, I, I think what you also just have to under, I mean, I, I'm going to wind back up for a moment. Yeah, please I mean, I, for, me, for me, this truly, completely, entirely is about ensuring that Jesus is Lord and scripture is authoritative for our lives. And I think that has been true since the beginning of the Methodist movement. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone can read John Wesley's writings and not say that he would hold to that. I think American Methodism has departed from that or has at least begun to depart from that for quite a while in different factions of its branches on the Christian family tree. Lots of different Methodists out there. Uh, And, of course, lots of different predecessor denominations as well. Um, Here's why I'd say we're in our present drama. Yeah. Uh, The present drama actually, (laughs) if you want to get to it, goes to general conference. And it goes from repeated attempts through progressives to try to change the book of discipline Mm -hmm. away from what we would understand as an orthodox belief. Yeah. You know the the Book of Discipline since 1972 has held a consistent position. Theological conservatives would be more than fine just to say, "All right, we we got that settled back in 72. Uh, we have a whole host of things we need to be worrying about. Is the church effectively making disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world? How you know where do we need to to improve the ways that we are." discipling people and spiritually forming people all those sorts of things right but yet every four years uh progressives have chosen that to be the topic that they kind of want to make front and center now there have been other issues let's be clear yeah i mean in florida uh you know uh what 20 or so years ago uh our bishop uh bishop timothy whitaker uh was one of the only one of two bishops who publicly came out and stated that another Bishop at the time who was claiming that Jesus did not bodily resurrect from the dead was wrong. I, you know, and by the way, I was so proud of our right. Bishop for yeah. doing that and saying, this is wrong. Uh, that that's a big deal, you know? Uh, and I know folks love to say, Oh, you're cherry picking." Well, no folks, uh, the, the book of discipline states that a Bishop is a Bishop of the whole church. Yeah. So the bishop of Chicago is just as much my bishop as as our bishop is theirs. Mm. Uh, that's a big deal. When we have bishops, uh, you know, when we have bishops who state that they don't think that Jesus was bodily incarnated into a man, mm-hmm. that's a big deal. Yeah. Um, so human sexuality has—it's been the thing that General Conference is focused on, and it's kind of the the topic du jour, but there are way more fundamental things that are at work and i think when we ignore them we ignore them to our peril because i think they actually erode the fabric the Mm -hmm. theological fabric and foundation of the church in a, a far more dangerous way and it's why quite actually we finally have said this is not repairable you know we it it's time to depart uh, it's ungovernable, it's unrepairable, we need to depart and start something new where yeah. we can ensure that we have a very strong foundation.
0: Well, let's recapitulate the history of the Wesleyan Covenant Association briefly. And uh, with respect, I, I feel like we answered that concern about as well as we can with why now. But um, the, the next topic that I knew I needed to flesh out was um, the protocol and the formation of the Global Methodist Church. Um, remind me, when was it that the WCA was officially launched?
1: WCA was launched in 2016.
0: And that was after the Chicago. General Conference? Yes. Okay, so General Conference 2016 was even more virulent and and upsetting than, than the ones that came before, and, and they had some real competition in the ones that came before. But after that General Conference, you, Keith, Keith Boyette was on board at that point, wasn't he? Uh,
1: no, Keith had not been hired as president. Okay. Uh,
0: really, I would say the leaders at that
1: time were Jeff Greenway, were Carolyn Moore, uh, uh, Rob Renfro, you know, other folks like that. Uh, once the WCA got formed, the the Global Council quickly realized they needed uh, a day to day full-time person who was overseeing its operations. So Keith came on board quickly after that. Okay. Uh, But initially, uh, Jeff Greenway served as the chair of the, the the council that formed the WCA and then chaired the global council for several years.
0: So at that point, the, the rhetoric was we're not trying to lead a a schism. We're trying to advocate for the conservative uh, constituency. We'd like, um, to stay united methodist but if it becomes clear that the united methodist church is not to be a good home for conservatives then yes we are posturing to start a new denomination
1: i think that's accurate i mean i was not on the global council in those days but i am told that at almost every meeting there would be kind of a discussion of are we leaning in or are we leaning out yeah uh, and I, I think for quite a while, the prevailing wisdom from the council was we're, we're leaning in, yeah, uh, and not leaning. But yeah, the reason uh, I bring that as, up
0: is because so many on the left say, "Oh, they were from the day one trying to divide things." And I, I, I think, I mean, it's been a while since I read the initial articles written, but it seems to me that the efforts were made to convey to Methodists that, no, our, our preference is to stay, um, but if it becomes clear. That, that we can't, then yes, we are taking measures to to start a new denomination, which of course did become the Global yeah. Methodist Church.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. And we, so as I said, the lean in was definitely the, the kind of prevailing wisdom for a long time. And you kind of have to go back to remember the commission all the way forward was formed. right, And then eventually, uh, you know, the one church plan was developed and then all of a sudden Traditionalists said, whoa, 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 wait a second. You know, that's, um, that is one position. There should be other positions considered. So finally, you know, you have the three plans that go to the Special General Conference in 2019 in St. Louis. And uh, the traditional plan passes.
0: Even though it wasn't even presented the WC- by the bishops initially. It, it was insisted on by— Not Initially— it was, it was a mess. It really was an amazing thing where the will of the General Conference overruled the will of the bishops who did everything that they could to, to take the traditional plan off the table. Oh, they did. Yes. No,
1: no question about it. Yeah. And it, it wouldn't have even presented, or it, I don't think it would have. I was not on the commission on a way forward, but my understanding is it would not have been even presented by the commission. Right. Uh, if not afterwards. Folks just said, this is unacceptable. Right. You know, you, you are ramping something down our throats.
0: No, I uh, remember. Predetermined. I remember they said they didn't <clears throat> even have a version of it to present. And I remember some guy with a USB came forward, a thumb drive and and they get he gave it to them and then it it wasn't workable the the central the standing committee on central conference matters dismembered it so that when it was finally presented it was barely workable and then they stood in the way of the amendments that needed to get made paragraph 2553 was adopted without knowing its financial implications the rest is history we've been living with that misery ever since there was a bright spot after that in um, Oh, I forget the name of the African bishop who called the different constituencies together along with Feinberg and came up with the um, uh, protocol for peaceful reconciliation and separation. Um, Right. And that was adopted. When was the protocol uh, published uh, publicly?
1: It was made public in January of 2020.
0: That's right. And so we were supposed to have general conference that year where the protocol would be adopted. But then... COVID-19 threw everything off, and we'd already been kicking the can for a decade where conservatives had been hemorrhaging uh, from the denomination this whole time. Would you say that the launch of the GMC – I mean, I remember it happened right after the Commission on General Conference just said, we're not going to have it in 2022. It's going to be 24. It was pretty much immediately after that that the GMC said, okay, we're launching – Um, do you think that they pulled the trigger on... Well, I don't want to feed you words. Why do you think that they pulled the trigger right then? Why do you think that that was the presenting time to do it?
1: Oh, well, well, I I can easily explain that. Mm -hmm. And the guest you're going to talk to tomorrow, can also explain that. So uh, Joe DiPaolo, who is a member of our Global Council, was a member of the Commission on General Conference. So as... You know, the protocol comes out January of 2020, 12 weeks before general conferences to start. I still believe to this day, you cannot convince me otherwise. Had we not had a global pandemic, had the general conference occurred in May of 2020, I believe the protocol would have passed. Mm-hmm. There may have been some tweaks to it, but I believe the protocol would have passed in substantially similar form to what it was negotiated. And I believe we would have successfully uh it developed a, a better alternative to the mess that we are dealing with right now um, <clears throat> but covid19 happens uh in march you remember i remember the whole world shuts down right and general comp is not possible in may it gets postponed i think everyone understood that it got postponed that initial year so it gets to 2021 but then all of a sudden it gets postponed again. And then I think people's, uh, their flags start to go up and say, wait a second, is mm-hmm. this political or, you know, is there some, is there some intentionality? Are we trying to, right. to prevent, you know, the protocol from going and then it's supposed to happen in 22. And then we find out all of a sudden that there's rumblings that, Uh, you know, Africans won't be able to come into the United States because of vaccine distribution. Uh, So the WCA fixed that. Uh, We raised enough money to make sure that all of the delegates, regardless of their theological leaning, never asked, uh, were vaccinated. We never said, are you a conservative? Good, you get a vaccine. Are you liberal? Oh, you don't. We just said, would you like one? If you would like one, we will make sure that you get vaccinated.
0: The can, we, on
1: the General conference. can we
0: camp out right there for a second, Jay? Because um, I just sure. recently watched a an interview with Bishop Mande Muyombo, who is uh, Bishop of the Katanga uh, Conference. Um, he is yeah, not so secretly yeah. known as um, very sympathetic with the, the liberal bureaucracy of America. And it's my understanding he doesn't even live very in his so. conference. He actually lives in the United States. Um, but what he That's said... Funny. Okay. What, what he said was that whenever you and other conservative caucus leaders put together that fund to purchase vaccines for whoever needed them, that one, you didn't go through the official channels of the denomination to, to get that distributed. And two, the money seems to have just been dumped on people without any kind of verification that they used it for those given purposes. Um, could, you, could you answer both of that those is, allegations by Bishop Muyumbo?
1: Be more than happy to. Bishop Muyumbo, 100% faults on both, and you know it. Um, <laughs> so we actually did go, my predecessor did uh, go to the Commission on the General Conference and the Secretary and say, we would be happy to partner with you all. If you would like to do this, we'll fund it. Uh, heard nothing. Uh, we went to progressive caucus groups and said, we're going to make sure that people get vaccines. You say you're for vaccine equity. Let's do this together. Uh, Rmn, uh, others. Did you and- go to
0: African bishops in particular and, and, and offer it to the African bishops?
1: So we have a uh, on-the-ground staff person uh-huh. in Africa, okay. Simon Mafunda. Yeah, uh, Simon is our well now he's our vice president for Africa strategy. I've interviewed time him. I love Simon. Africa. He's great. Simon is. Uh, I I could take twenty minutes and sing songs of praise about Simon Mafunda. <laughs> um, so Simon was kind of our is always our our kind of primary person on the ground. Mm -hmm. Um, So from there, you know, we'll work with any Bishop that'll work with us. Yeah. Um, And so we, you know, we absolutely worked to uh, through accountability, through having receipts, all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And folks who were vaccinated have vaccine cards and they can show, I mean, we can prove that they were vaccinated and all those sorts of things. Um, So we tried No one was willing to do it. So we said, you know what? My predecessor famously would say multiple times over and over again, where there's a will, there's a way. And he's right. And uh, so we made it happen. Then we find out that the the commission on the general conference literally never sent out invitation letters to the foreign delegates so that they could obtain visas. And they stated that they were finally canceling the general, com- I say cancel, canceling the general conference because delegates could not, get, there was not enough lead time for delegates to get interviews for visas to get in the United States. Well, you can't have an interview until you have an invitation letter mm-hmm. to take with you to the consulate to get the visa. They never issued the invitation letters.
0: I didn't it, remember I mean, that detail. I remember, I read DePaulo's. Yeah, I remembered reading DePalo's and I'm gonna ask him about it when I talk to him soon. Um, he said that they didn't even survey the delegates until the day before their meeting when they were gonna make a final call. That's correct. They didn't even survey to see who was vaccinated right. or who had passports. Um it, it just seemed so clear to, to 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 Joe that they had not operated in good faith. And once that became known that that was the straw that broke the camel's back and and led to the launch of the GMC.
1: It was okay. so at that point we believe it was very clear to us that uh, the United Methodist Church had become ungovernable, and that we were not going to be dealt fairly with yeah. at that point. And waiting till twenty twenty four was just absolutely not a possibility because the only provision that allowed disaffiliation would expire before that time. Right. And so yeah. at that point we felt like we had no choice but to go ahead and launch the Global Methodist Church which, you know, I know progressives had decried, but let's be honest, it would have been launched under the protocol. Yeah. It was I mean that would have it it was it was a piece of the protocol. So in June we launched on May 1st in June when all of the progressive signers of the protocol uh, withdrew their signatures. Stating one of the reasons was because we had launched. I'm like, well, but the document that you negotiated assumed that we would launch. I, this is, you know, there's how is that inconsistent with what you negotiated? It's not. Um, so, yeah. I, so to, let's to me. There's a lot of clutching of pearls and a lot of plucking of tongues, uh, and it's it's much ado about nothing.
0: Well, let's. I want to camp out on that too because. um I did a, a report a couple weeks ago on an article written by Taylor Watson, Burton Edwards, who um, he, he talked about why the protocol support fell apart. And he, he painted a picture where a couple of the participants died, um, a couple of the liberal groups uh, withdrew their support. Um, but then also he says that uh, pretty much what you just said, that, that the GMC functionally walked away from the protocol when they chose to launch. And to that, you would say what you just said, which was uh, the protocol always saw that as an eventuality. So uh, just to be clear, do you, on behalf of the WCA, continue to vocally, publicly support the protocol being adopted at General Conference 2024?
1: Oh, it would be great if it got adopted. I don't. I don't think it has a chance at all. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I, I personally met with the president of the Council of Bishops, Tom Bickerton, and Tom Bickerton said he knows that it has no chance of passing. It is, it isn't, I mean, it will be presented. Mm-hmm. All the petitions from 2020 will go to 2024. Right. But, you know, it, it is dead on arrival. There yeah. is no way that the protocol has any chance of passing anymore.
0: In order for it to be adopted, and is it 51% that needs to vote for it? Yes. Okay. So even if the Africans were galvanized around it, they don't represent fifty-one percent. So uh, has little chance.
1: No, there's people don't quite understand how the delegates the math works. Right. Um, always in Methodism, we equalize clergy and laity. Right. So when you do that, you always have to start with the clergy because they're a fixed number Mm -hmm. and then make sure that you have enough laity to equalize the clergy. So absolutely there are now more laity in Africa than there are out, not in Africa. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But what people don't understand is the number of clergy in the United States far outnumbers. The number in Africa and retired clergy count retired elders and deacons count oh, and okay. so because we have all of these retired elders and deacons there's just way 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 more and so That's even if we didn't have our present troubles okay. yep even if we didn't have our present troubles even if we were just kind of tracking along mm-hmm. um our best math is probably um Africa would not actually achieve a majority of the delegates probably somewhere in the late 2040s would be sometime when they would finally achieve that. Okay. Um, So in 2024, uh, we will not be able to control legislation, you know, at at 2024.
0: Well, let let me uh, come back to this uh, point I was camping out on a minute ago because one of the centrists Liberals I've been talking, I would call him liberal, he might call himself centrist, uh, David Livingston. He says, uh, it's a more nuanced point, but he says that after the protocol was adopted, what what the WCA did was it held a meeting before that general conference, Commission on General Conference meeting, where the mission of the WCA was augmented. And what the the parties of the protocol had said was that they would not... Um, file charges against one another until the protocol was adopted. But what the WCA did was it augmented its mission so that it uh, again supported filing of charges against those uh, violating the Book of Discipline. And by doing that, you had left the terms of the protocol, thus nullifying your support of it what would you say to that? Because I I honestly don't understand. I I should have, before I talked to you, looked at the augmentation of the mission statement of the WCA. I did not. Shame on me. But as as one who participated in those conversations, what do you think that Mr. Livingston perhaps misunderstands about that?
1: Uh, David has his timeline wrong. Uh, The WCA adopted a new mission statement. we didn't augment our mission statement we adopted a new mission statement mm-hmm. at our global legislative assembly in May of last year
0: and that the was
1: the general conference had already met we had already announced the launch of the global methodist church okay. we did not change our mission statement until after that so and okay yes one of the new components of the mission statement is to hold people accountable but we have made clear, I personally have made clear in my writings, that we have absolutely no uh, desire to go on any sort of a witch hunt for LGBT clergy. Uh, when we encourage people to hold uh, folks accountable, I want to be real clear about what we mean by that. We mean bishops and district superintendents who are violating the Book of Discipline. That's what we mean.
0: And that makes sense to me. And and so that we're clear, I'm sure that Mr. Livingston spoke more accurately than I just presented. Augmented was, I, I'm sure, my word for understanding what he said. And then I'm not sure that he has camped out on that timeline that I presented. But I think that I did get the overall point clear that when he says that the new mission statement advocates for accountability, that that express, expressly leaves the terms of the protocol as it was understood. And what I hear you saying now is we're not talking about a witch hunt for for individual people outside of, uh, you know, the bishop's office, um, you would understand the provisions of the protocol to be saying no witch hunts in general, but you you think that the protocol plan would have been okay with exercising accountability on denominational leaders?
1: Oh, yeah, no. The protocol specifically states that there would be a moratorium on church trials related to LGBTQ issues. That's what the protocol said. Okay. Okay. period. I mean you can go with yeah. the protocol. I mean yeah. Yeah, that's what it says. Okay. Um we changed our mission statement to say that we wanted people held accountable. We didn't say anything about holding people accountable for LGBTQ issues. We would never uh we would never single that issue out. We just said we wanted leaders to be held accountable. Uh this past summer, summer of 2022, after progressives withdrew their support, mm-hmm for the protocol, we did state that two things. We encouraged churches to consider withholding abortionments, and we encouraged folks to file complaints against bishops and district superintendents who were violating the book of discipline. And you can read the article. It very clearly states we have no desire to go on any sort of a witch hunt to file charges against LGBTQ individuals.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, uh, The article, I think it's Let My People Go. I I remember that one, and it was to stop giving apportionments. Was it only in those conferences that had provided unfair burdens to exiting under 2553, or was it the whole connection?
1: No, it was right. So thankfully, and and I sincerely mean this, I, I extend a word of appreciation to boards of trustees annual conferences, bishops, and the majority of annual conferences in the United States mm. who have provided what I would call a clean 2553 process. Yeah. They are only using the terms spelled out in the discipline. When we, when we encouraged churches to withhold apportionments, that was solely in the annual conferences, they had added onerous and punitive additional measures to 2553, making it, in many cases, so churches in those conferences will never be able to get out yeah. or at extremely
0: Yeah, so I'm, I'm about to issue a, a report on Baltimore Washington <laughs> Annual Conference, which is overseen by Bishop Easterling, where they have a 50% uh, uh, payment they're requiring on the part of local churches, 50% of the, the worth of the building which is prohibitively expensive whenever it's added on top of unfunded pension liabilities and and those other expenses. So um, Bishop Easterling was one of the signatures on the protocol, and then she's one of these bishops that withdrew support from the protocol and is now exacting a higher price on local churches wanting to leave than than most annual conferences. Um, Is there anything to be said about that? How about, this would be fun, is there a way to strongman... um, her her opinion or her behavior, so that that does not look overtly autocratic and manipulative.
1: <laughs> uh, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> okay. I, I I mean, Bishop B. Sterling did help negotiate the protocol. Uh-huh. Um, You know, I, she would quickly state, I'm sure, uh, that she has not formally withdrawn her support from it. It was the non-bishop progressive uh, signers that withdrew their support, no Bishop formally did. So I think she would quickly say that, Mm -hmm. um, I'll give her that. I, but my goodness, uh, you can say that, but then when you exact a 50% of fair market value of the church, uh, as a price to leave the denomination sure doesn't seem to fit with what you negotiated in, in the exit, uh, under the protocol. Uh, very few churches are able to afford such a thing. And uh, I, property in Maryland is expensive.
2: Yeah. yeah. Very expensive.
1: I mean, property everywhere is expensive, but there's certain parts of the country where it's even more expensive. Right. Property in Maryland is expensive.
0: Well, supposedly they still have 20 churches that are going to go through the process and pay out the nose, but uh, for those who can't afford to, they've filed with the NCLL against the conference, and we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, you know, God bless those churches that are able to do that. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I mean, one of the things I've learned in this role is, is that you know churches are so different. Uh, and you'll have a great big church that has no cash, right? And you can have a tiny little church that is sitting on piles right. of cash. Yeah, uh, it just there's there's, no, there's not a lot of rhyme or reason to it. So I, there is a small handful of churches in Baltimore, Washington, I, who I think are, must be able to afford it, and I'm grateful that they can get out. God bless them for being willing to go through that process. Uh, and I, I pray for those churches who have felt like they have no choice but to go through the lawsuit, That's that it's going to be a tough road yeah, for all of it's them. it's ugly. And, and it did not need to be this way.
0: Yeah. Yeah, in Florida, the NCLL uh, was that was where the the first action, the the first lawsuits were filed, and that was last year now, um, and and we're still waiting to see what's going to happen there. the 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 federal judge uh, would not dismiss um, as the conference asked that they would, but it it, it still uh, is awaiting trial and and how how far out are things in in Florida? Uh,
1: so not a federal judge. Oh, a it's
0: state a state
1: judge. judge. Excuse me. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. The suit was filed in Florida state court, right. not federal court. Yes. Uh, so the annual conference filed a motion to dismiss. The hearing for that was last month, uh, February twenty second. Uh, the judge, I was there at the hearing. The judge stated he would rule quickly, and uh, yesterday was four weeks, and we still don't have a ruling yet. So okay. Uh, we're we're hoping uh, we're hoping Judge Wright will. Will give us a ruling here sometime soon. Uh, will the ruling?
0: Will that be the final step? Will he rule on whether or not the the Florida churches have good cause to to sue? Well, is it? What what's the language here?
1: He could. So there's lots of ways he could rule. Okay. Uh, he could he could grant the entire motion and just throw the suit out. He could rule against the entire motion and all the complaints move forward. Uh, Or he can dismiss some complaints and keep other parts of the complaint.
0: So if complaints move forward, does that mean future trials?
1: Complaints move forward and then we'll shift to discovery with depositions and subpoenas and
0: interrogatories
1: and all that sort of thing, and then it would move to a trial. All right, I got a nerdy question
0: to ask you now. (laughs) Um, yeah, and uh, I, I'm aware that in North Georgia, they went through this period. Um, the the one church that Sue Halpert Johnson uh, behaved the way she did with, th- there was a period of discovery where um, they they saw emails, text messages, stuff that was very vindicating for them. However, they could not share any of that publicly. It was all kept under wraps. So is there any way for the discovery process to go forward so that the things that are discovered are made public for everybody to see, or is it always kept under wraps afterwards?
1: Yeah, well, I can I can speak for Florida because yeah. I'm a member of the Florida Bar. Yeah. Uh, no, discovery is public in Florida. Okay. So, I mean, you, you can – I don't know that we would, but, I mean, you, you could live stream the deposition if, you know, one of the – one of the plaintiff churches could live stream the deposition if they wanted to, to social media. Um, and it, it's one of the reasons the Florida Conference does not want to move to discovery, because right. yes. then all those sorts of things begin to come out. Right.
0: I think I saw yesterday that Bishop Carter, who was the bishop that y'all filed against uh, initially, he, he moved to, um, was it North Carolina?
1: Western North Carolina. Western
0: North Carolina. And I think I saw yesterday that... Um, uh, they had filed. The NCLL had also filed against him and his administration over there, but the state judge dismissed yesterday. I think. Have I understood that correctly?
1: Uh, hearing uh, was Tuesday. Uh, the judge. Uh, I, I, so I'm a little hampered on what I can say. So, okay. well, the we don't judge. ruled The judge ruled orally. Okay. The judge is supposed to sign the order today. Okay. So we haven't said much about it because until the judge signs the order, it's not final. Now we're trying to follow that decorum. The Western North Carolina Conference did not follow that decorum. They issued a press release yesterday. Yeah. So you can read their press release. The judge did orally dismiss the suit. Um, I I will just simply say I I think it I think there are a lot of very appealable issues. Uh, with how the judge handled that case, it is extremely. I just say it's strange. It is strange in these days and times for a judge just to issue an oral dismissal and not give a written ruling spelling out all the different reasons why he or she dismissed. You know what the statement of facts was, all those sorts of things. I, I, it, it's not how we certainly do things in Florida. I don't think it's how they do things in North Carolina. Yeah. Um So I. It, very, very strange how that happened in court. <clears throat> we're
0: reaching, we're reaching an hour, and there's still a couple other things that I want to ask you about um, because I'm just a curious person, and and you're the guy. Um, so one of them is um, I serve on the WCA in Oklahoma. My heart has been just the 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 central core theological issue for me is Jesus does not coerce individuals into relationship with Him. Therefore, it is wrong for Christian institutions to coerce collective bodies or individuals into relationship with them. So I'm, I'm all about non-coercion. It, it's a very basic root issue for me. If there are any local churches that do not want to be in the conference, if you're going to call yourself Christian, you have to let them go. If we're if we're going to participate in this narrative that the United Methodist Church is a Christian institution, there is no way that they can maintain that self-image respectably and keep churches entrapped, and so that's where my heart has been in the WCA. I just want to do what it takes to help churches that want to get out, get out. One of the accusations against the WCA has been, well, there are two things that that kind of muddy the waters there. One is that the WCA wants to frame things so that there's as much destruction as possible, and even churches that would be happy in the UMC get a bad taste in their mouth, and they just want to get out. So so the WCA is not just interested, the accusation is they're not just interested in churches that are conservative and unhappy and really need a new home. They just want to see the UMC burn. The second accusation is the WCA was expressly formed to build up the GMC. So their incentive structure is not just to liberate local churches, but to then help them reaffiliate with a body that is going to financially benefit from it. Um, do you have, any reflections on either of those two accusations that might add some texture or help people to see things differently? Sure.
1: I, I mean, we've already talked about the fact for a long time when the WCA was founded, the prevailing wisdom of our leaders was to lean in to the UMC. That is just a, a false argument. We don't want to see the UMC burn. Mm-hmm. Um I think most of us would say, I would say, you know, I was called to pastoral ministry in the United Methodist Church. It breaks my heart to see what is going on in the United Methodist Church. Mm -hmm. I think it breaks Jesus' heart. I think it breaks John Wesley's heart. Um, No one wants to see the United Methodist Church burn. Um, The United Methodist Church could have been an amazing force for the kingdom of God, and I also want to say I don't know anyone in the WCA that would say everything is bad about the United Methodist Church. Yeah. There's lots of good that the United Methodist Church does. I think we also have to be honest, it has it has majorly lost its way. Yeah. And for that reason, churches do not feel like they have a theological home in the United Methodist Church anymore. We want to help everyone get to the theological home that best works for them, and actually, if you read our new mission statement that we adopted back in May, it actually says that we will advocate for people to leave both progressives and traditionalists. And there are progressives that are leaving under twenty five fifty three. Right, you have a very large one in your conference uh, that where that is happening. You talking about so Saint Luke's? I. Yes. Yeah, Yeah. so the big development
0: this week was Bob Long, Reverend Dr. Bob Long, uh, and his ministry team there very publicly rebuked the leadership of the annual conference, made a case largely financial and administrative for leaving the United Methodist Church in the Oklahoma annual conference and the conference is crying foul, saying you can only leave over sexuality issues, and so they did make that case, um, but, but even so, yeah, there are progressive churches that are leaving. Let's be clear, though, do you think the GMC is going to be a good home for progressive churches?
1: Oh, good heavens, no. Okay. Absolutely <laughs> so, not. So but the accusation
0: that you're trying to funnel every single church into the GMC, you would say, no, there are many churches getting out that really would not be happy in the GMC? No. no. Uh, now, I also want
1: to be clear. Uh, and i don't apologize for this Mm -hmm. Uh, the wca is the midwife that helped to birth the global methodist church yeah Uh, we don't apologize for that yeah and we're proud of the global methodist church we're humbly proud of the global methodist church and i think it is a denomination that is poised to once again kind of pick up the mantle of john wesley and and present a very winsome wesleyan understanding of the christian faith and hopefully make disciples of Jesus Christ that worship passionately, love extravagantly, and witness boldly. Yeah. Um, there are churches who won't find their theological home in the GMC, and that's fine. But if their home's not in the UMC, they ought to be allowed to leave. Yeah.
2: Yeah.
1: I, I do not, kind of goes to your point, Jeffrey, mm-hmm. I do not understand, it is beyond me, to understand why you would want to trap someone or keep someone against their will that doesn't do anyone any good. Yeah, it's not good for the denomination yeah. and it's not good for the
0: local church. No one wins in that scenario. I've I've tried to I've tried to steel man the position of those who were who were doing that and I I just can't find a a, a long-term reasonable disposition that they could potentially be holding in doing that. It just seems to be so re, reactive and based in denial and um it, it just seems like it's it's willfully ignorant of long-term implications and consequences i'm very concerned about this
1: it is so i mean so let's let's say a church is i mean if a church's mission truly is to make disciples of jesus uh for the transformation of the world you keep a church against its will you and i both know lady are going to start voting with their feet Mm -hmm. they're going to leave that church the church is going to get smaller they've been doing it for decades
0: but this is going to accelerate it. Yeah.
1: It will accelerate it. The church then gets to a place where it's no longer able to sustain itself when it can't sustain itself. Either the conference comes in, if it has the resources to prop it up, it does. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't, the church closes and then the church gets sold and the conference gets the proceeds. So that does not help the mission of the United Methodist Church. The only thing it helps is to bring proceeds of the sale of closed churches to annual conferences. Um, I I am not so cynical to say that that is
0: why this is going on, right? Yeah.
1: Um, but but I do think there is a strong institutional preservation piece here.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No disagreement here. the The thing I wanted to end on I've I've lifted up other people's critiques, and then I'm I'm somewhat of an idealist personally, so I want to lift up my my personal pain and frustration, and have you. <laughs> helped me get to a better place on it because the way that I've broken, uh, I, I've just looked at the denomination as a numbers game, um, and I think that conservatives actually long-term had the numbers to be victorious in the United Methodist Church. When you look at the growth of conservative United Methodism in the Philippines and Africa, I understand the, the, the math that you just described where it would be the 2040s before there was a, uh, a numerical advantage, but I, I think that had um, the Texas conferences stayed in the UMC, I think had conservative state and slogged it out. We could have blocked the adoption of a, an LGBTQ uh, gender theory, SOGI theory um, adoption in 2024. And then I think we could have gradually grown a, mature, uh, a conservative majority that cleaned house and, and kicked liberals and progressives out of the general boards and agencies, got conservative bishops in place. I think the numbers were on conservative side and it, it seems, it has seemed to me, I'm, I'm not going to say, I'm not going to speak as firmly. It has seemed to me as though conservatives just got tired of fighting. And we were just content to, to say, here's a bunch of money. Here you go. We're going to go start our own thing. And then the, the particularly unfortunate thing, and I, I would like it if you could, you can't respond to all of this, but this particular thing really bothers me. In Oklahoma Annual Conference, we're having three waves of churches disaffiliating. The first wave left in October. We have another wave leaving uh, next month. And then there's another one, ostensibly, hopefully scheduled for October. But the thing is, as each wave of conservatives leave, the the body of voting delegates that's sympathetic to letting churches go shrinks and shrinks. I'm not sure that the October batch is going to be able to get out here because we allowed for a system to be designed where we're not exiting all at once. There's just been this gradual bleeding out that I think serves the UMC institution much more conveniently than conservative constituencies. And I have a hard time believing that WCA GMC leadership did not see that eventuality. So the very conspiratorial part of my mind has gone um that there have been other incentives in place that trump the the well-being of local churches whether they be conservative or liberal there are institutional forces at play on the left and the right that um that just did not put the the best interest of local churches in the in the paramount place so i i think i um probably talked about my frustration. It seems to me that we could have held on longer and gotten everybody out at the same time, and it would have been much more beneficial, even if frustrating in the short term. And just the slow train wreck that we're watching right now that is just going to crush a lot of conservative. I don't think even half of the conservative churches in the UMC are going to make it out before the doors close. And that that's just really appalling to me. So that's a negative. Okay, we'll go positive after this. Let's let's spend a minute addressing that negative, and then we'll talk something positive. We'll talk Star Wars or something. <laughs>
1: um, goodness. So I would respectfully disagree with a lot, probably, of, of what you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I also am very sympathetic to what you said. Um, I here's kind of the part that I think maybe we miss a little bit. Um, could we, could theological conservatives continue to try to slog this out in general conferences? Um, I I guess the answer to that is possibly yes. We don't, you know, we don't know that for sure. Um, is that really what Jesus wants for his church? Mm-hmm. I'm just not so sure about that, I mean, I was at General Conference in 2019. Yeah, I will tell you that personally, that last day of General Conference, I would say was the worst day of ministry in my entire life. It was icky. It was appalling.
0: I watched it, it online, yeah. It was appalling. It was icky. I,
1: I was in the room. It was appalling. Yeah. Um, and no one won that day.
2: Yeah.
1: And the person that was most heard of all was Jesus. I don't know that it serves anyone to continue to go through that Four more years. Four more years. Four more years until we get to the 2040s. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I would respectfully disagree with that. Um, and I think, I think the cause of Christ is damaged dramatically. I also think we are increasingly living in a culture that is be- going to become more hostile to Orthodox Christianity. Yeah. And so I, I think, I think that sort of public spectacle every four years really doesn't help us okay. in that climate. Yeah. And by and large, my first loyalty always is to Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. And I want to see the cause of Christ lifted up. Yes, I am a Methodist, but that is absolutely subservient to the fact that I am a follower of Jesus Christ. So I need to see the cause of Jesus lifted up and and moved forward uh, before I want to see the cause of Methodism lifted up and, and move forward. Um, as far as churches getting out, I, I'm sure you're right. There will there will be churches that that I I fear will be trapped. And I have consistently said since I became president, uh, a, a one sentence mantra that I've had: the longer you wait, the riskier it gets. And I have I do fear for churches that have kind of waited to these final waves for the very reason that you've stated. Uh, I hope that those are unfounded fears, mm-hmm. uh, but I think we do have to be realistic. We, we've had some trouble, one, small trouble in Arkansas, not so small to those three churches, but numbers-wise small in yeah. Arkansas and then Virginia. We still have a 99.8% passage rate of churches getting out, which yeah. is really good. Um, I All of this goes back to the fact that I plead with bishops— Stop trying to hold people against their will. Yeah. Uh, vote on churches in the block, and let churches let adults be adults and let them go. Stop trying to game the system. Stop trying to prevent people from getting information. Stop trying to uh, you know prevent churches from being able to host informational meetings and you know those sorts of things. It it needs to stop. Yeah. Um, my heart breaks that there will be churches that probably wake up on January first and go. Oh, we've we've messed up. Here's where I would also disagree. I think I think the WCA, you know what I'm going to say I know the WCA we have done our absolute best mm-hmm. to try to get this message out. And this past summer we worked hard to get our re- regional chapters very resourced and to get them moving quickly to help get this information out to churches. Um, I don't, I don't think that's on us, and I, I say that humbly, and I say it with a willingness to be corrected. I don't think it's on us as a failure to get information to churches to say, look, the window's open, the window will close on December thirty first of twenty twenty three. You need to get out now. Yeah. Uh, I think the onus is on denominational leaders who have either shared true misinformation i hate that word that word has been (laughs) you know uh, go back to the princess bride i don't think that word means what you think it means sure yeah uh i think i think today it's become information i disagree with is what how misinformation gets defined i mean this is what i was saying i for churches that don't get out a my heart breaks for them right and b I want them to be cared for because I, I fear that the United Methodist church over the next coming years is going to become a very uncomfortable place to be for a theologically conservative church. Yeah. Um, we have tried our best to do everything we can to get this information out. And we ha- I have lost count of the number of obstacles that have been thrown in our path. Right. Uh, it is not even remotely fair. We don't have the power, Uh, the institution, which is dominated by theologically liberal bishops and general agency leaders and boards of ordained ministry and cabinets and all those sorts of things. They have the power and they are stopping this. I mean, I I have lost count now of the number of annual conferences that have just flat out said you cannot have anyone from the WCA come to your church to do a presentation.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah. We live in the United States of America with the First Amendment and the freedom of speech, but apparently not in the United Methodist Church. So churches have to go off-site to do meetings, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. Um, You have an annual conference that just totally shut its process down, North Georgia. Yeah. uh, Knowing that there were about 200 churches that were about to join the queue never able to just shut down. We're trying to work something out there. I don't know if we'll be able to or not. I pray we will. If Mm -hmm. not, those folks will probably have to follow an enormous lawsuit. We have places like South Carolina that did not even offer any process, just flat out refused to do so. Finally did, you know, offered a process the week before Christmas, you know, not the, you know, the slowest time of year for pastors and churches Mm -hmm. and churches have had to just Run to try to get through a closure process. They won't even use 2553. They're using the closure process, and they added to a 10% fair market value tax. You have church. You have annual conferences that are changing the rules midstream. You know, all of a sudden, Northern Illinois is now charging different figures. Uh, West Virginia had no process, and then they were using 2549 for conservative churches, 2553 for liberal churches. Now they're using 2553. So many uh, annual conferences that don't publish. A lot do, and I want to thank those annual conferences mm-hmm. for publishing their disaffiliation guidelines online, yeah. but there are a fair number that don't. Right. So no transparency. I just, we have had so many obstacles thrown in our way, Uh and for churches that find themselves trapped, I that's on the leaders of the United Methodist Church. And and I, I don't know how else to say it. I know this probably comes across bad. They ought to be ashamed of themselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the 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 only thing I would add to that, I I I mean, clearly my theological issues are with the left. I, I I'm not at all sympathetic and I, I don't appreciate the the contributions of liberal theology, generally speaking. But I have been very uh, frustrated with conservatives in the United Methodist Church because they've been generally timid and wimpy, and they've been very reluctant to collaborate together. Um, Any networks of of, um, communication between conservative churches, for the most part, I'm not gonna say universally, but for the most part I've noticed there just being a ton of conservative clergy that wanna put their head in the sand sand and not hear about it. They don't want to work with the WCA or any other group. They just want to follow their own heart and their own conscience at their own pace and their own way, and that that's just made it. Um, I mean, that's why we're in the situation we're in. It's just be, we could not. Well, anyway, I'll go on a tirade about <clears throat> that some other time. But I I do I do still have frustrations with, and it's not. Don't hear me. That's not with you. That's just with conservatives in general. No, no, no,
1: no. no. Uh, let me nuance. That maybe just a little bit because i don't entirely disagree with that um what i have heard from many pastors i i can't tell you how many times i've heard this yeah they'll say you know i was just focusing on my church right and focusing on making disciples in my community and sharing the gospel where we lived and i didn't really care about what was going on in the district or what was going on in the annual conference mm-hmm. or the jurisdiction right. or the general conference because i was busy like doing real ministry mm-hmm. their words yeah uh and i want to say i so totally understand that mindset mm-hmm. at the same time i think it has gotten us into big trouble yeah because when we when we stopped caring by and large about what was going on there that vacuum got filled and we totally lost control of the denomination. We lost control of the episcopacy. We lost control of the general agencies. We lost control of the boards of ordained ministry and the cabinets. And even though we may have the numbers laity, we have totally lost all of the leadership pieces of it. Yeah. I pray we learn from that lesson. I pray in the global Methodist church that we will understand that we do have to pay attention to those things. Right. Now, the Global Methodist Church has tried to dramatically decrease the bureaucratic footprint of the right. church, yeah. so there's not as much to have to worry about. Right, but those things do have some importance, uh-huh. and we've got to get better about caring about those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good. That's a good closing thought. I don't. I don't want to. I mean, I do like Star Wars, and I know you do too, and we could connect on that. But I. I, do, I just. <laughs> I. I think uh, it's good to to let sober, heavy things stay sober and heavy. But I do want to invite your, your, your closing comments on uh, positives that you're seeing, things that people can be praying for, where God is moving, um, anything along <laughs> those lines that we can just rejoice in God's goodness and have hope for the future.
1: Uh, so I, I am an optimist at heart, and uh, I know that the best is yet to come because I follow Jesus Christ— and because I know how the story ends, mm-hmm. God wins. Yeah. And so uh, John Wesley was correct. You know, best of all, God is with us yeah. and God wins. Yeah. Uh, so I, I am very optimistic for the future. Are we going to have some more short-term pain to go through? We, we are. We need to be realistic about that. Uh, there will be some losses and there will be some wins. And it will be hard. It already has been incredibly hard, and it will be painful. Mm. Uh, I hope we are careful to guard our hearts. I tell people that everywhere I go. I think it is so easy right now for our hearts to get hardened in this very uh, toxic situation that we're in at the moment. And if we let them harden, then we finally get free. We will not have a soft and pliable heart that the Holy Spirit can then use to carry out the mission of the church. Mm-hmm. So I, I do think we have to guard against that. I would desperately ask people to, to pray uh, for the churches that are still in the queues to get out this year. And there are, there thousands. Yeah. So uh, they need your prayers. You need to be praying for annual conferences uh, to act fairly. You need to be praying for uh, kind of, uh, hijinks not to happen during votes where people try parliamentary maneuvers to stop things pray for our churches that are in such desperate situations that they're in a lawsuit yeah that no one wants to be one no one right um and pray for those folks uh pray pray for the leaders of the united methodist church i do every day uh and they may find that bizarre to hear uh but i sincerely pray uh, for the leaders of the United Methodist Church every day. Uh, I want them, I want God to bless them with everything that they need. Not, not necessarily what they want, but everything that they need. Yeah. And I pray for that every day. And I would encourage people to do that too. Um, we're, we can see the end. <laughs> I mean, December 31st is less than nine months away from now, but we got a lot of work left to do in these nine months. And uh, we've got to link arms with each other. If we're not supporting each other, it, we, we won't make it. So yeah. uh, I, the future is bright. We've got to persevere through this last stretch to
2: yeah. get
0: there. Yeah. I have wondered, at the end of the year when 2553 expires, is that when the WCA loses its purpose and is not needed anymore, or do you think it will continue on indefinitely?
1: Uh, I, you know, I don't know how to answer that question. So we have three task forces right now that are working on those very topics. Uh, we have a task force working on regional chapters. We have a task force working on the global uh, WCA, and then we have one working on strategy for general conference 24. I am very sure the WCA will continue to link arms with its renewal and reform coalition partners through general conference, 2024. Okay. Um, after that, I don't know yet, but we are presently working on that very issue.
0: Well, the reason I started this podcast, um, and and now, viewer, I just want to turn to you. The reason I I just—I think faith seeks understanding, and a lot of times right-leaning voices, thinkers, parties are not well represented and not well understood— Um, I turned to Reverend Thorell, just hoping that he would be vulnerable and forthright. And, uh, you know, Jay, I don't know that I could have asked much more of you. I really appreciate you being gracious with me, especially as I've leveled uh, complaints and accusations at you and the organization from other voices. And then from me, you've been very gracious um, with your time, with your energy. I just want to thank you. For anyone who watches this, right or left, uh, interpretation is a lot of times just a decision you make. And there's a decision you're gonna to have to make about if you're gonna to continue to see people you disagree with as demons, or if you're gonna be able to, to understand and, and validate that, that these are people who love Jesus, they love their kids. And, you know, if you've been listening to Jay, this guy does not have hate in his heart. He doesn't wanna burn the denomination down, he doesn't want any harm. Um, that's where my heart is as well we find ourselves at a a very unfortunate place, and I think we're only gonna make it through this as good Christians and adults if we stop demonizing and mischaracterizing one another. It's okay to disagree, but I I just, I think it's wrong the way that people have spoken about you and other uh, Reform and Renewal leadership. Um, And I I think you've intentionally spoken well of of everybody you disagree with. Um, um, We've not characterized all their actions well, but, we pray for and will the good of those on the other side, but we're clear that non-coercive freedom is the way to go, and we're going to continue to advocate for that in our respective places. Um, yeah, let's let's end with that, and then just uh, anyone who spent your time with us in this way, it went a little over an hour, God bless you, I know long form is not the way Methodists like it, but if you would just be intentional about saying the prayers that Jay has advocated for us to be saying work those into your daily uh, prayer life. Um, I believe that prayer makes a difference. And so pray for your enemies, pray for the institution, pray for your your allies, pray for the different groups exercising authority and influence in these areas. And then also if you're in the United Methodist tent, do your part to help people to speak well, to understand the people they disagree with, and to be fair so that 10 years down the line we're not regretting the way that we behaved and spoke in this time, so. Um Amen. Amen. all right, Jay's in agreement with me. All right, we're gonna we're gonna do this thing right. Um, all right. Well thanks for your support of Plains Spoken. Pray for Jay. Jay, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: Well, my privilege. Thanks for the conversation. I've enjoyed it.
0: Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut the recording and then we'll we'll visit a couple more minutes and God bless anyone who watched. <laughs> thank you.